They are non-fungible. You can't swap them for something. You know, you you can swap a fast food meal. They're the same all over the world. But the experience of sitting with your family is a, something that only you can create at that time, especially if you've you've actually made it yourself. And that is a non-transferable good. And that's a rare thing in this world. Welcome to Fortnum's Hungry Minds podcast with me, Felicity Blunt. I'm thrilled to bring you this conversation with a very dear friend of Fortnum and Mason's, the wonderful Stephen Fry. Stephen is an English comedian, actor, writer, presenter, activist, and mental health advocate. He's well known for roles in A Bit of Fry and Laurie, Jeeves and Worcester, his narration of all seven Harry Potter audiobooks, and a Tony Award nomination for his adaptation of the musical Me and My Girl, which ran in the West End for eight years. We often trot out the old cliche, I could talk to you all day. But really, when it came to Stephen, I almost did. At one point, as you'll hear, even Stephen's Siri was listening to intently. That's why we've decided to divide this interview into two equally delicious portions, this being part one and part two following on next week. So without further ado, let's hear from the man who sits firmly in the top five guests we want at our fantasy dinner tables. This is genuinely such an honour and a pleasure. And we know that you're a friend of Fortnum and Mason and have sort of had a relationship with them for years. I'm old enough to have known them. Are you? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Back in the early 18th century. <laughs> Did you have a Did you have a favourite? May I? <laughs> Fortnum was always charming. Mr. Mason was a little snooty. <laughs> well, I have been spending the most wonderful week um, watching you, listening to you, reading you, and I am just well, honestly, bowled over. I have to be, I have to be honest by your range of accomplishments and also the sort of self deprecation that seems to accompany those accomplishments. Um, but you. I mean, I've read biographies describing you as a Renaissance man, a writer, an actor, a comedian, a director, quiz show host, compare extraordinaire, librettist. I mean, and that's not written by your mother. That is actually, that is on the record. <laughs> Those are your achievements. And you have covered so much and clearly united by a love of words. It feels like words are the common stream that run through those. And... I read a quote from you that said, I like to wake up each morning and not know what I think, that I may reinvent myself in some way. So I confess to being curious, amidst that crowded field of job descriptions and accolades, where would you where would you reinvent yourself? What would be another challenge for you? Well, it's a very good point. And since, since I know food and drink are going to uh, emerge as uh, hot topics for us t- today, I, I would say that I've often had this fantasy view of myself taking five years off. I imagined this in my 30s when it was more feasible. If I took five years off now, that would be basically retiring because in five years' time, <laughs> I'll probably fall into the grave. But like Cher, you could continue to come back like each year. You could announce in a retirement and then, you know, we'll see I, you again. Indeed. <laughs> and I'd need a machine to make my voice work probably like that. But, <laughs> but I, uh, yes, I imagine taking five years off and slowly getting used to having a garden that produced produce. That's what produce is, what's produced, but you know what I mean. And that over the years, I would learn how to pickle and make chutneys and jams and make cakes and pastries and cook, a general sort of cook, almost more a cook than a chef, but just to 
not for any grand reason of living off the land and the good life necessarily, although that is an advantage to, to doing that oneself. You know, I'd probably have a, a, a hen coop and things like that for chickens. and uh, Because I just, that strikes me as such a, an admirable life. And I know people who have something close to it in the country. You know, they're the kind of people who have, uh, at the end of their front garden path, uh, little trestle tables with eggs and tomatoes in season for sale uh, uh, to people who are walking and driving past. And I, I love that about the countryside and about the fact that so many people are capable of doing that without making a fuss about it. You know? And it, it's such an obvious and natural way to live. And I think Losing our relationship with food and drink and uh, and the way they can be utilised throughout the seasons in all kinds of different ways has been one of the great losses of civilization. And although I'm a great admirer of civilization in many respects, mm. rather like Gandhi, uh, I would welcome it. Uh, uh, but, <laughs> it, you know, th there is un unquestionably uh, a shadow cast by our shiny cities and so on. And, and that shadow sort of freezes out... Uh, a more gentle and healthier way of being. So I suppose it's kind of typical urban guilt, really. I just feel that I'd be a better person if I were literally grounded in the earth, watching things rising out of the earth, tending to them. It's a fantasy. You, but you, you grew up in Norfolk, is that right? Mm. That, yeah. And was yeah. that, was that more, much more rural? Was that a rural in Norfolk? Oh, it was. I, yeah. I, I mean, if I describe it, it does sound a bit Downton Abbey, but I promise you it isn't quite as grand <laughs> as that. But, but, you know, we had, at one point, we had three gardeners, I think. I mean, that sounds insane, but, uh, but the garden did produce food all the time. The gardener would come to the back door and, and Mrs. Riseborough, who cooked for us, would, would, would take the day's vegetables for cooking and there were sheds where apples and potatoes were laid out and would last all winter you know on newspaper that's how you know I, I've, I've had boyfriends and now a husband who will take potatoes and put them in the fridge and, and tomatoes, oh, yeah. tomatoes in tomatoes, the fridge yep. and, and, and I, I go no, no. <laughs> and, and bottles of you know ketchup and and, and and chutney in the fridge I get the whole point of it being a pickle or a preserve is that it doesn't need yeah, to be yeah that's my husband chilled. as well it's basically yeah. all sugar at that point it's it would last an eternity, but yeah, it ends yeah. up in the fridge. Yeah, and also when things are cold, the flavour doesn't spread over the mm. over the palate nearly as well. I mean, tomatoes are a perfect example. A, a cold tomato is just rather acidic and tight, but a warm one that's been on a table with a bit of sunlight—that's uh, just instantly the Mediterranean opens up in front of you. Which is ironic because, of course, tomatoes are not Mediterranean. I, I have know. I love that about tomatoes. They're sort of assumed to be, and actually, oh, you know, they were a traveller. I thought of doing a documentary, which I would have called Solanum Thanks for All the Food, which is a sort of play on Douglas <laughs> Adams's Solanum Thanks for All the Fish. But Solanum, Solanum is the, is it the order or the phylum? It must be the order of plants from which come potatoes, tomatoes, woody nightshade, of course, um, cassavas, all, so, almost everything from... Uh, the new world as it was to us in the 17th century and even earlier when it was first first stumbled on by European travellers and these tobacco so you've got <laughs> think of everything that comes out of South America you've got mm. tobacco cocaine um, <laughs> chocolate chili all chili all the capsicums, I think, is the proper name for them, isn't it? And and obviously they spread through the Portuguese and the British and Empire they spread to India, where, of 
course, Chile is a huge part of it. And I remember an Indian friend of mine, we were talking about this, and I was saying we must be grateful to those naughty Portuguese and their empire in Goa, because at least they brought brought you Chile. And, and he said, no, Indian food had had peppers for a long time. I said, ah, I think you're making the mistake of confusing pepper, the seasoning, which is endemic to India, and the famous pepper gardens of India gave us the pepper that we use as a seasoning, from peppers with an S, the capsicums, which are not related to that pepper at all. It's just what linguists call a false friend. It's not connected. And he was shocked, and he actually went to Wikipedia to check that I, was, I wasn't, you know, basically just casting aspersions on his <laughs> native... He, he, he assumed, like a lot of Indians, that they'd had chilli for hundreds of years and that the idea that they were introduced by the hated imperial Portuguese or British was a bit of a blow to him, and I can understand that. And similarly, in Italy, um, the t- you know, I mean, the, the insulata caprese, the, the mozzarella, the basil and the tomato is the, in- is the Italian flag colours and is, you know, what we think... Think of as of, of as Italian food and and t- tomatoes are everywhere. The pomodoro is the seems and yet of course that too was introduced relatively late. I think it's I think it's fascinating how much food becomes a culture's identity, whether or not indeed it came it was it was originated there. When you're thinking about tomatoes and you're thinking about San Manzano and you're thinking about how much the, the what type of tomato becomes sort of so protected and defended and celebrated within Italy. In, in America, they use. Uh... They use heirloom and heritage to yes. describe tomatoes. Yes, heritage yeah. tomatoes, heirloom. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine the family sitting around in the solicitor's office, and they say, "I now read the will of Cecil Arbuthnot <laughs> to my darling son-in-law Henry. I leave." Three tomatoes. <laughs> so, well, they're, well, they're yes. heirlooms. They're heirloom, and they're valuable, and they, yeah, they've been passed down. I know, I, I, but I think, I think it is so much. I don't know whether you found over this last year of lockdown, but food has become ever more oh, heavens, a yes. focus, and and actually mm. trying to eat outside of what I usually eat, or finding that I can eat more than the Granny Smiths, if I'm talking about an apple, that there are sort of 800 yeah. other varietals. And I, I, I suspect Absolutely. you knew that, having grown up in Norfolk, and you had all of that laid out literally in front of you as your potatoes came in. Well, yes. I mean, obviously, the West Country is best known for cider apples, but Norfolk does grow them too. And there are orchards. Our house was um, bounded by a fruit farm. And my brother and I used to occasionally, in the long summer holidays, get, earn extra money by going picking black currants and goodness knows what else on this fruit farm and one got a sense of the immense richness and variety of 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 British produce and of course Brogdale is it Brogdale in in Kent which is where all the uh, apples and pears are grafted and all the varieties and hybrids and everything are maintained and kept it's like a great stud book of 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 apples and i think i think it's called brogdale but that's where you find the worcestershire pear mains and and their various different families of pear main and different other make, makes as it were of apple and it is astounding how many there are and some of them are a bit cotton woolly in the mouth but the flavour's good other ones are very tight and crisp but the flavours you know there's so many because things in nature uh, whether it's wine which is more obvious and coffee and tea but also apples they they have such a spectrum of possibilities about them and and I you know we used to especially being British think it rather pretentious 
to bring our minds to bear on what we were tasting and what we were experiencing inside the mouth in terms not just of flavour but also texture and, and temperature and all the range of things. And yet it is so primarily an important part of who we are and what we are put on this. It's, there's almost nothing we do more regularly than eat. We only sleep once, possibly have a nap in the afternoon, but we're going to eat probably three times a day, in my case, seven. And, no, absolutely. Uh, I'm you with know. you, seven. I spend most of my waking hours thinking about what I'm going to eat, where I'm going to buy it, how I'm going to prepare it. And then if Stanley's already come up with another plan of what he's going to eat, I'm somewhat affronted because I've already sort of committed to my plan of, you know, pasta or risotto, and he's decided we're doing steak. And <sighs> it's amazing how much... I was like, but I... that You know, I'd already envisioned my whole evening around slurping pasta sauce. I know, know what you mean. And and I my mother's family was Eastern European Jewish, uh, Eastern and Central European Jewish, and I would get rather embarrassed by how much they talked about food. It was absolutely natural to them to talk about what are we going to eat? Let's eat Essen and Fressen. You know, the whole thing was it was a huge uh, part of life and a part of celebration. That also, of course, being Jewish and European in the twentieth century, they had known hardship of of a terrible kind. They weren't the, the poorest family in the world, but they had known the hardship and obviously uh, much of the family had been destroyed by anti-Semitism and, and Nazism and so on. But it meant that food became even more important. It's a yeah. central thing. It is your heritage, isn't it? And often the only thing you can bring with you if you've had to leave behind your home is... Exactly right. It's, it's the memory of your grandmother's cooking and it's honouring that and holding it ever closer. When I was writing these books on Greek myth, when I was very interested in the, very, in the first book in, in looking at the firstborn of the Olympian gods. And most people think, was that Zeus? Was it, you know, Poseidon or uh, one of the biggies? It was Hestia, uh, who was the firstborn of the six children, uh, of, of whom Zeus was the youngest, in fact. And most people think, Hestia? Who's Hestia? The Romans called her Vesta, and we might, they might remember Vestal Virgins. They were forerunners of nuns. In fact, nuns basically just took over everything to do with them when Christianity replaced the Roman religion. But Hestia was the goddess of the hearth. Now, you know, we think of the hearth, and we go, well, yeah, but no, we don't have hearths now. I've got a radiator, thank you very much. But, of course... The word hearth is so interesting in its history that the, the one of the Greek words for it, there are, there are several, was cardia, as in cardiac, as yes. in heart, heart. Yeah. And, of course, hearth and hearth is heart with an H on the end. Yeah. And it is indeed cognate, as a linguist would say, with the word heart. It is the heart of a home, literally the beating centre. And, and another clue to that is the Roman for hearth, the Latin, is focus. And we took that word focus and we made a metaphor of it to be anything about which we beamed our concentration, the focus of the home, the focal point, the heart. And for thousands of years, since we began to speak probably, and, or even earlier in the days of what they call development of, uh, of modernity, behavioural modernity, they call it in Paleolithic <laughs> studies, I believe, you know, i.e. fire and tools, we had a hearth and we would use it to gather the family around for protection, of course, against animals who were afraid of fire, for warmth, for light, and for for starting to do this amazing thing with food, we discovered that, that heat could alter it and make it even more delicious. And 
that's when stories began to be told around the fire, the hearth. We began to tell stories of how the world was created and why we are different from animals and all the mysteries that surrounded us. And this carried on, and I would say right into my childhood, where the fireplace, or we had fireplaces at home, but, but also television. The television yeah. in a single room was a point of focus out of which came flickering light and which the nation told itself stories. And But, of course, in the last 20 or 30 years, all that's been broken up. And now, you know, the family, uh, the daughter will, will watch Netflix in her bedroom and have a pizza pizza delivered by Uber Eats or Deliveroo. And the son, well, goodness knows what he's watching in his bedroom. And, uh, <laughs> and the father's playing with his PlayStation and the mother's watching uh, something maybe even on the television, all in different rooms, all getting food from different places at different times. So that we have literally lost our focus. We have lost the hearth around which we used to sit and around which we used to share stories of the day and enjoy food together and the triumph of having as a family or as a group of friends got through another day and talking and planning for the next day and all those things that... And I know that makes me sound absurdly old-fashioned and it's also possibly hypocritical as I so welcomed modern technology when it came. But I think you can, in an, you know, you can, not necessarily in an ideal world, in our world, you can combine the best of technology with the best of traditional ways of being. I think... I think the kitchen table, although I, I completely agree with five children in our house, it's sort of just usually a race to see who can claim the remote first. But I, um, <laughs> sometimes that's me. But I think that the kitchen table and sitting down as a family, it's almost the one moment that you can capture in a day, often by sort of beguiling yeah. everybody together by the promise of hot food that's been made Absolutely. for you. And that is the hearth. The kitchen is the it hearth is, still, It is now the hearth. It? Yeah, and the yeah. table and sitting and just even if everybody sort of eats in silence, it is about sharing space together, yeah. isn't it? And, and yeah. the food and the plate often is what allows you to do that. Um, but I agree, it's it'd been interesting to see that sort of frac that almost the the insane number of options we have to entertain ourselves has gone by, you know, it's gone much beyond just sitting down to read a book, which was what I did, you know, as a kid. It's now podcasts, Twitter, all these things that I don't understand on my phone. <laughs> And if one wanted to be uh, very up-to-date about it, you could say that the, the joys and pleasures of the table, of the familial and friendship table, as it were, around which one can sit, whether it's a dinner party with friends or it's a, just a family dinner, and uh, I say just a family dinner, but it's that great thing, a family yeah. dinner. They are non-fungible, uh, to use the, the, the common and excitable word of the day, the NFTs. I'm sure you've been following these non-fungible tokens. In other words... You can't swap them for something. You know, you, you can swap a fast food meal. They're the same all over the world. But the experience of sitting with your family is a, something that only you can create at that time, especially if you've cooked it rather than just got a bunch of buckets of fried chicken delivered. You've actually made it yourself. And that is a non-transferable good. And that's a rare thing in this world. So who does the cooking in your home? Is that you sat I mean it sounds like you're completely well versed in both the seasons <laughs> and produce and you're vegetarian aren't you is that I became vegetarian about 5 years ago thanks to a, a man called Pete Singer whom some of your listeners may know about he's an Australian philosopher always makes it sound rather grand and of course Monty Python made such fun of the idea of Australian philosophers with the <laughs> philosopher's song and uh, but but he's he's a superb 
I mean, an ethicist is probably the right word to describe him. He's professor of bioethics at Princeton these days, I think. But he, when he was a student doing his postgraduate work at Oxford, he coined the phrase uh, animal liberation, I think. He, he, he was a very early sort of thinker in terms of you know, the very basic question. Religion always said that animals didn't have souls, which is an extraordinary idea. But uh, I suppose... They were just trying to articulate what we probably sense, that animals' consciousness is rather different from our own. As far as we know, a kookaburra isn't aware that there is such a thing as a puma and isn't interested. If it saw one, it would simply run away or fly away. It wouldn't try and name it or say, I think that's a cat, so it's probably related to a tiger. You know. But whereas we have this very extraordinary consciousness that wants to rule and name the world and to understand and to be a part of knowledge and so on, the whole web of it. And so maybe that's the church's excuse for saying animals don't have souls, but it always sounded rather callous and brutal. But Pete Singer basically said, well, can they suffer? Can they feel pain? And are we happy about causing pain? If we're healthy, he argues, and he gives good, he argues from the very beginning, as good philosophers do, you know, if we're healthy, we probably don't enjoy giving pain. In fact, it's a part of ourselves. We, we pride and take joy in giving pleasure and not giving pain and not receiving pain. But if we're giving pain to animals and we know we are, is there something we can do about it? And one of the ways in which we seem to be clearly making animals suffer is in our factory use of them for for eating it's really hard to get away with it uh, you know with claiming that they don't suffer and and i know some people will say oh yeah but this you can't solve all the problems of the world you're a hypocrite i bet you wear leather shoes or whatever and yes i mean absolutely i don't get it all right and i wish i could give up milk because i'm aware that the dairy industry might might be considered something that causes great suffering to cows you know the idea of how Motherhood in a mammal is an immensely powerful thing, as you might well know. Yes, 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 <laughs> and, absolutely. Uh, and just imagine any female mammal, imagine a human female mammal who was imprisoned, raped with machinery, in other words, just penetrated and pierced with a machine version of a, of a penis which, which injected semen into her. And then that worked and took. So her whole body, and in the case of cows, it's an enormous change, has this hormonal explosion of creating milk and protein and fat for the baby. But more than that, things going on in the brain preparing to protect this new thing that's going to come out. And what happens? The calf is born. The mother can't even turn round to lick it before it's taken away. And if it's a male, it's just going to be probably used as veal or even just killed straight away because it's no use to the dairy herd. And if it's female, it'll just be given milk from <laughs> sterilized bottles. And, and they you scream. Know, I mean, it's, they scream, and they scream. They? And if yeah. you look at the mother's face as it tries to turn and lick it, because every fiber and chemical in its body is screaming for it to do what it has prepared for months to do, which is to welcome this calf into the world and to get it onto its feet and to lick it and to have it nuzzling it. And, and that's taken away. And it's heartbreaking. And, you, you know, yes, sentimental. And you can say that, how do we know this? 
and come on. And But if we could, and again, I'm going back to this ridiculously idealistic world in which I've got my five years off. I may have a nice little cow or so in the field and there you can be friends and, you know, look after it and it can be happy. Now, obviously, there are just too many of us on the planet to allow that to happen and to get your flagon of Tesco milk at the price you expect it. So I'm all in favour of the... Oat milk revolution. <laughs> yes, yeah, no. even if you can't milk oat, it is an oat milk <laughs> yes. I, or milk and nuts, yeah. as one of my friends said. But <laughs> but I agree. I think there has been a recalibration. It feels like a rebalancing, and there is a heightened awareness of this. And I feel I also feel deeply for the farmers who are in this cycle of sort of servitude ultimately to the supermarkets and having everything dropped and the money taken away and that you know there's a horrifying statistic isn't there about suicide within the farming um, population and it feels just utterly imperfect and and unfair and difficult but I think what you're saying is that we all have our own sense of responsibility and we can all actually make a decision that can have a positive effect and the power of changing one person's change can be amplified if others take it on and follow the example and down the generations I think we're all aware that the, the, it, throughout the culture, throughout English society, there's a reset and a recalibration of the way we look at our history, the way we look at how we treat people in society and have treated them and how that should change. And that can happen through generations as much as anything. Uh, it, it's very noticeable that younger people have a very different attitude to food and its production. And I think of the same thing when I was discovering more and more about the damage done to animals around the world by the Chinese traditional medicine market and various other markets for tiger penises and goodness knows what else and and, and rhino horn. It's always an extremity, isn't it? It's always an extremity. It sort of always feels like something you think, God, that poor animal and that a horn, a horn, you know, and the rest of him is attached. And the horn is chemically identical to my fingernails. It's just, you know, that's it's the same as hair. It's just keratin. A keros is is keros is the Greek for horn, keratin and keros, and rhino keros is nose horn. That's all it means. But on the other hand, us shaking our fists at China is a they're going to say, oh, what about you in history? And they'll be quite right. Choose the right Our history has been. Which one do you want to use to listen to this? Is that my Siri talking? <laughs> it might be. <laughs> Siri, turn yourself off. Thank you. So sorry. Yeah, I mean, the The Chinese will say rightly that, you know, I mean, in the time of Shakespeare, bear baiting was a bigger theatre sport than plays. And we got rid of every wild bear and every wild wolf in Britain uh, through cruelty and the most appalling treatment of animals. And and China can rightly say that. And we will say, yes, we put our hands up to that, but we've changed. But they'll say we're not taking any lectures from the West. And uh, you know that it's pointless. But there are younger generations of Chinese people who are more aware of the web of nature and and where food comes from and, and, and how species endangerment is a danger to the entire planet, not just to the species who are threatened. And you have to grin and bear the fact that it's slower than just having a change in law instantly. But there will be new generations of Chinese people coming along who have a different attitude. And I think that's yeah. what and I you think, have to rely on. I think that becomes lasting change as well when it moves slowly, actually. And it is born of a generation because it's a sort of it's a shared view, isn't it? And yes. It and has it, a permanence. It struck me also as a very good reason why 
um, death is probably a good thing. Yes. Uh, you know, obviously I'm getting to the age where I'm aware of aware of death, kind of the skirts are rustling and it's sharpening <laughs> the, the sickle and, and all the rest of it. But uh, but if if the same humans or the same life forms on another planet, and there may well be a planet where death doesn't exist, you know, there are species on Earth that don't die, it seems. And so you could, in theory, just constantly renew yourself in nature. And, but the consciousness would be the same in that sense. Otherwise, it would be death. So the problem is having generations of old people continuing to live, they would be far less likely to change their ways. Whereas the fact that every 70 or 80 or 90 years, there's a kind of, you know, that's the end of your life. Young people take over. They can have fresher ideas and better ideas and occasionally worse ones, of course. But there's, it's renewal and refreshment, like the Larkin poem of the trees, you know, each year. It's a kind of grief, but it's also a fresh, a fresh, a Hope. fresh. Yeah. yeah. And energy as well, to be honest. Yes. <laughs> well. yes. I look at, you know, the younger generation, either in my house or at work, and I think, God, you have so much energy. I mean... That's so interesting, <sighs> Felicity, because I was having this conversation... I used to have this conversation with my father, who was a physicist, and, and I used to say, right, look, I've got the idea of physics, OK? Work is, is heat and is energy in the universe. That's what it is. Thermodynamics tell, tells us this. And a unit of heat from the Latin calora is, is a calorie. It's a unit of heat, literally heat. That's how you measure a calorie. It's the amount of heat it, that it, it, it creates in the body. And that heat allows it to work. It creates the electricity for the electrolytes and for your brain. It creates the blood transport. It creates absolutely everything, the temperatures, without those calories creating that heat you could do no work you could not be alive that's that's clear in the same way that the the calories are in petrol because petrol comes from an organic form too from from trees and from well, that's coal but from from life under un, under the oceans that has got compressed into hydrocarbons and so on and without unless you put the 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 electricity or the petrol into your car it can't go and the same with my calories obviously if i put too many calories in unlike a car where they would just spill out of the of the <laughs> of the petrol port they get stored away as fat so like batteries as it were now that we all get OK, so let's have a Sunday lunchtime. There are four children who are making a hell of a noise as you're trying to serve out all the roast beef and all the, whatever else it is you're having. And I eat probably twice as much as all four children put together. So I have given myself an energy store far bigger than any one of those children. But when the dinner is over, when the lunch is over... All I want to do is stagger to an armchair, yep. sit down yep. I'm and with you. Fall, fall flatulently to sleep <laughs> while the children are running around the garden. And they go on a trampoline. They're like, I'll go on the trampoline. And you think, how and, have you not yeah. been sick? And they've got and they've had far less. They've put less because they said, do I have to have all that potato? Do yeah. I have to have those vegetables? I don't like this. I don't like that. Uh, can I get down, please? And yet. The, so hang on. I've got I've got more energy in me. Literally, I've got all that energy. They've got less energy. But in terms of 
Uh, my father would say something about metabolism, but that seems to be a feeble excuse. <laughs> I worry that I eat so much I just send myself to sleep because the blood necessarily has to rush to my stomach to sort of help deal with the cargo that I've just taken on. And yes, I I, <laughs> I had the I had the rather hopeless thought that because most of the energy uh, that you you expend uh, is is spent on uh, digestion and the whole business of metabolism. I thought, well, the more I eat, therefore, the more weight I'll lose because I'll have right. to spend more energy. <laughs> <laughs> That's like dreaming of perpetual motion, unfortunately. It doesn't quite work. But can I ask, because I read, I was reading um, your one of your autobiographies and you talked about, and it really stuck with me because it just took me straight back to my breakfast table, um, sugar puffs and the ice cold milk. <laughs> and that was sort of one of those things that was sort of those mm. foods that was an obsession. I remember watching my sister had the same thing, but she had pour single or double cream onto hers. So she really, oh. sort of, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a thing to watch. But you have, it sounds like you have... And, and and yet you also grew up in this household where there was seasonal produce that was being bought in. Mm. And you are clearly so in tune with what you love. And it sounds from having spoken to you earlier, I know you'd made a risotto, that your food and your interest in food has changed over the years and has become your or your palate has developed in some way. Or were you always able to sort of you would sample everything? No, I, I took for granted all the, the natural good food that Mrs. Riseborough cooked for us when, when I was a child. And, you know, it's shocking. I thought of that as just the sort of dull necessity of of eating, whereas I was of that generation. Uh, you know, I was born the same year as Sugar Puffs, 1957. <laughs> and and and. And our generation, our baby boomer generation, so rightly hated by the the, the subsequent generation, <laughs> we we were the first to experience things made for us. We were regarded as a new and incredible market for television, for toys, for magazines, for colourful, bright, sugary, instant things, for popular culture, in a way that my parents' generation never had been at all. And they found it baffling. I mean... There was a bit of jazz when they were young, but it wasn't popular culture. It was closer to classical music in many respects, jazz in the in the 40s and 50s, especially as white British people listened to it. And television was just something for watching uh, the coronation on or the odd space exploration, as it were, the funeral of Churchill or whatever it might be. And yet their children, who were, they weren't that much older than, 20, 22 years older than or something, had this entirely new universe to play with of things made for them. So th this was all exploding around me and made for me. I, I could step out and in the 70s, there was David Bowie for me, there was Elton John for me, and then punk, and uh, as I went to university, punk was all around. And everything seemed, I seemed, my generation seemed to be the focus of attention for the marketing world and the world of new ideas. Then in the 80s, uh, it was the great thing to be a 30-something. You know, there was even a TV series called 30-somethings, which was about, uh, and and then we were becoming hateful yuppies and and discovering wine and, you know, Australian wine, varietal wines were suddenly appearing in shops. I mean, my parents were baffled that you could go into a shop and order a wine by the variety of grape, which never used to be the case until Nick Lander and Francis Robinson first introduced the idea, really, in the 80s uh, from Australia, that 
you know, I don't want to shatter this. I don't know what grapes in this. It says Grave on it. Well, unless you know that Grave is a Bordeaux wine, there's no reason to know what grapes would be in it. Whereas an Australian wine, they would say, this is a Shiraz, this is a, you know, <laughs> and you would know what the grape was and suddenly you'd learn more. This was a new thing. Everything like that was happening for my generation, including an explosion in food in the 80s. It was... Uh, it was cuisine mass or nouvelle cuisine, of course, was becoming the thing, tiny little things. And now, of course, it's very apparent that we are becoming almost retirement age, that same generation. And we've got the houses, we've had the love and the luck of of the cosmos thrown at us. We've had university educations without having to have a debt, you know, and having our entire grant paid for us by our local authority, whatever our income. And unbelievable how fortunate that generation is. And anybody young listening doesn't need to hear this because they already know it. And uh, having me apologise for being fortunate is not going to change anything. But it is a very extraordinary thing. So that small window on the world, something like sugar puffs, is a symbol, really. The sweetness and the, the instant Russian buzz that my generation demanded, that the generation before would never have dreamt of. My parents' generation was one where pleasures were to be deferred. You know, you have your cake after your sandwiches. You know, that's an absolute rule. You, 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 and in fact, don't have sweets between meals or don't have this, don't do that. This is, you know, bad. This is too enjoyable. You can't have that. This is, has no sustenance. It has no nourishment. This is just cheap, flashy junk. Well, cheap, flashy junk has become mainstream. It's become everything. And Instant meals, warm-up, microwave, yeah, yeah. delivery. Everything like that. You know, yep. yes. From having heard you speak earlier, it sounds like you have moved more into cooking yourself, sort of a, yes. a, a greater reconnection, and actually the pleasure of slow cooking over the instant gratification. Sounds like it holds sway. Absolutely. I love, this is, I know this sounds a bit weird, my husband thinks it's peculiar, but I love lining up the little dishes and ramekins, doing the prep. I've discovered which any any of you who cook will know is so obvious it really shouldn't be worth saying. But I've discovered how preparation is just about everything, really. What I used to do, what I suppose most amateur cooks do when they first start, which is look at the recipe, put a pan on the heat and put yeah. in the first thing it says in the recipe and then look and it then says, finally chop an onion, in which you've suddenly yeah. got three seconds because <laughs> the first thing you've put in is burning. Whereas now what I love is just to, maybe you have to heat the oven to get it up to temperature, but then it's, you know, like American recipes always call for scallions, as they call yes, them. Yes, the scallions. We yeah. call spring onions. Yeah. And, and they separate the white from the green as two, almost two separate ingredients. So you thinly slice the white part all the way up. They're like mini leeks in that respect. And then the leaves, the green bits, you then slice them and they make a very good garnish or for various later addition and so on. So I sort of do all that. And I mean, it's pathetic, the detail with which I'll go into. No, I think it's reverential. I think it's like, I think it's a meditation as well. You're I right. Think I've read or I heard you talk about the fact your husband will say that if you go on holiday, you you seem incapable of relaxing and there is an itinerary that has squeezed every second out of every hour. But it's can true. cooking be one of those things where because, you know, you use your hands, don't you? You're not on an iPhone. You can't. You can listen to a podcast, but it is phys it is a physical activity. Do you relax yes, when you cook then? I yeah. do. And I, I, I love it. I mean, if 
if Elliot, my husband, isn't isn't in the in the room, um, sort of walking up and down, chatting while I cook, which he often is, then, then I'll, <laughs> I'll then I'll listen to the radio instead. And and I yes, I I, I just love the rhythm of it, and I discovered that uh, truth that all chefs know as well is that the sharper the knife, the the safer, which always seems seems counterintuitive, but of course it's true. A really sharp knife doesn't slip, and it, and it's just so exciting. So I go through the whole. Oh, you sharp, do that sound. I'm of doing sharp, a mime. Yeah, yeah, sh- yeah sh- sh- exactly. <laughs> yeah, which always makes my teeth kind of like sort of wince when people do it. It's it like, is, wow. Yeah. It's yeah. a bit nails on blackboard, isn't it? Yeah, my yeah. husband loves doing that as well. But he said, we'll do one and then he'll decide <laughs> to do the entire 20. You know, we've got a lot of knives in our house. I mean, I pity the person who ever breaks in because that's like a sort of arsenal of weaponry in our kitchen. <laughs> but he likes to do them all. And it's uh, is, by the end. Is he, a, is he like me, a sucker for gadgets as well? I mean, I, I'm very easy to find Christmas presents for because the more ludicrous the uh, de-clover or de-huller, uh, yeah, a raspberry de-huller, just for raspberries, you know, and absurd little gizmos. Oh, like that. no, but he's he, not. So I'm get, yeah, I tell you what, he seems well, to like that. Then, I gave him. He likes these pair of goggles. I mean, they are so ridiculous. I'll have to oh, send goggles for onions. Yes, I mean, he looks insane. Um, they're sort of green and white rimmed, and you come into the kitchen, he looks up, and he sort of has forgotten he's wearing them. But of course, you immediately want to laugh because <laughs> it's sort of he looks like a sort of wild wasp of some description. If, <laughs> if you slice an, an onion in half. Especially if you slice it through the roots, as it were, so not through the equator, but but through the Greenwich meridian, as it were, (laughs) the lines of longitude. And as long as you don't cut the root end, far fewer of those chemicals come out. Come up into your eyes. I mean, it is amazing, isn't it? A humble onion has got quite the weaponry associated with it. (laughs) And it has more sugar than, than a sugar beet. I did not know this. Which, of course, only comes out when you when you um, caramelise it, it yeah. when you when you slow cook it. Yeah, uh, um, a thing I was told, and so again, I'm sure lots of people discovered this on their own. But if you do something in the days when I was a, a meat cooker, in particular, something like a, a slow slow roast uh, belly of pork, if you take two onions and cut them in half and flatten their tops, they can be used as a st- uh, to, to rest the pork on, and. The onions afterwards, because the pork fats run into them and they've become oh, sweet so with the bits. That's the chef's perks, as I think of it. That's yeah, the sort of thing that I would immediately eat, so. like out of the pan before serving, and uh, yeah. <laughs> quite happily and selfishly. Well, that's it for this week. It really was my pleasure to chat with Stephen, and I do hope that you enjoyed it too. Don't forget to tune in for the second part of that interview next week we'll pick up exactly where we left off and discuss Stephen's earliest and fondest memories of Fortnum Mason, the way words have been a passport to all his great adventures and the ingenuity of eggs. If you're enjoying this series so far, we'd be so glad to read your reviews. So please leave us one wherever you listen to your podcasts and do share us with your friends, family and fellow hungry minds. Join me next Thursday for the second part of my chat with the one and only Stephen Fry. 